Hi, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast, Little Sapiens. My name is Dr. Max Cohen, and I'm a pediatric resident from New York. Today, we are going to take a dive into a topic that is fairly common in pediatric medicine. It was formerly called failure to thrive, and commonly it's still called failure to thrive in the hospital as well as in clinics. However, there has been an attempt to make a name change from failure to thrive. So we'll talk about this topic. We'll go through some important concepts of what the definition is exactly of a child that is failing to thrive. We'll talk about the pathogenesis, as we always do, the different things that can cause failure to thrive and uh, different genetic syndromes, perhaps, as well, that may be involved. And then we'll talk about some important things to consider when it comes to protecting children, whether that is um, thinking about poverty as one of the determinants of a patient's health. Um, There may also be other social determinants of health and different things that we could do to help provide children and families with the means to properly provide nutrition to their children and in order to prevent failure to thrive, as well as other um, pediatric conditions. And then lastly, you know, talking about some cultural considerations that we want to keep in mind, as well as going through some diagnostic testing and uh, other important considerations. So uh, stick with me here. This uh, could be a long one, um, but I... I am confident that by the time we finish with this episode, you'll have a great understanding of what this is exactly, this concept of failure to thrive, and you'll be able to um, apply it to your, your workplace as well as maybe educate some of your friends and family too. All right, so we're taking a deep dive into this pediatrics and review article titled Failure to Thrive or Growth Faltering, Medical, Developmental, or Behavioral, nutritional, and social dimensions. This article was published in November of 2021, so fairly new. And bear in mind, as we go through this topic, as we usually do with all pediatrics and review articles, this is meant to be a review, not a complete picture of every little detail of this condition. However, this does give us a really wholesome, complete idea of the general sense of this process. So let's keep that in mind as we move through this. Again, if you ever uh, are looking for more information, uh, feel free to go into Nelson's Pediatrics textbook, um, as well as other additional resources as well. Failure to thrive is an archaic term, and it is now often replaced with the terms growth faltering, or you may see weight faltering, or poor weight gain, and it's used to describe a symptom of many forms of primary and secondary undernutrition, usually in young children. Let's give a statistic to explain just how important this topic is. Worldwide, childhood malnutrition is still a major cause of morbidity and mortality, with 45% of mortality in children younger than five years linked to undernutrition. In the United States, the epidemiology of growth faltering is difficult to measure because of the lack of uniformity in the population studied and the definitions used. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into cultural considerations later on. 
Now, there is an increased risk, specifically in children of low-income households, especially those with special health needs, um, as well as refugee children and children of lower birth weight. Growth faltering increases risk in the short term for medical complications of acute infections and chronic conditions, and also in the long term for persistent short stature, developmental and psychosocial deficits, and adult conditions like cardiovascular disease and metabolic syndrome. Basically, growth faltering has implications for the future of a child and for their risk for infection, as well as many deficits and growth. And the treatment, successful treatment, usually requires a good assessment and intervention that is re- required in multi in a multifaceted fashion. And so that's where this Pediatrics in Review article is really going to go. In defining growth faltering, we are looking at specific parameters. So growth faltering is a descriptive term. It's used to diagnose children who either attain a weight for length or BMI, Uh, below the expected on age and sex-specific growth charts, or if their weight on these charts crosses downward, meaning it goes down more than two major percentile lines after having previously achieved a stable growth pattern. Now, the term failure to thrive has been replaced now by growth faltering, as we've already mentioned, specifically because um, growth faltering is more descriptive it's less uh, pejorative, meaning it, failure to thrive sort of implies that someone has failed, right? Whereas growth faltering, we now understand, can be caused by many different conditions, many different um, variables that doesn't necessarily imply that someone has failed on their part to provide proper nutrition to a child. And in many other places worldwide, other than the U.S., Growth faltering has slowly replaced the term of failure to thrive, and so we are trying to adapt that change here as well. Growth faltering results specifically from malnutrition. The definitive definition of malnutrition by the World Health Organization holistically refers to deficiencies or excesses in nutrient intake, imbalance of essential nutrients, or impaired nutrient utilization. ASPEN, also known as the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, defines malnutrition as an imbalance between nutrient requirements and intake that results in cumulative deficits of energy, protein, or micronutrients that may negatively negatively affect growth, development, and other relevant outcomes in the child. To classify malnutrition, the CDC has recommended using the World Health Health Organization standards um, from birth to age two years and then using the CDC reference charts from ages two to 20 years. And it goes through some indicators, specific data points that help us understand how severe uh, the malnutrition exactly is. If, say, you have a single data point, meaning you have a child that comes in for, say, the first time to your clinic or they're coming into the emergency room and all you have is one data point. 
So you can look at different things to determine the severity of their malnutrition. You can look at weight for length or their BMI, specifically at the Z-score. If there is a Z-score that's between negative 1 and negative 1.9, it would be mild. Between negative 2 and negative 2.9 would be moderate. And if the, the Z-score is less than or equal to negative 3, that would be considered severe malnutrition. Now, we can also use length for height Z-score, which would follow the same as the weight for length and BMI. And we can also use mid-upper arm circumference Z-score. And again, that would use the same severity scale. Negative 1 to negative 1.9 would be mild. Negative 2 to negative 2.9, moderate. And for severe malnutrition, less than or equal to negative 3. Again, that's if you have only one single data point to look at for the patient. But what if you have multiple data points? If you do, then that might give you a more dynamic assessment of the patient's uh, malnutrition and the severity of their malnutrition. So say this is a child that's less than two years old. You have multiple data points looking at their weight over time. Uh, a good thing to look at is weight gain velocity. So again, less than two years old, we'll look at weight gain velocity. If their weight gain velocity is less than 75% of their normal expected weight increase, that would be mild. If it's less than 50% of their expected weight increase, that would be moderate. And if it's less than 25% of their expected weight increase, that would be considered severe malnutrition. When we talk about children ages 2 to 20 years old, instead of looking at weight gain velocity, we look at weight loss. And if it's mild malnutrition, it's 5% of body weight. If it's moderate malnutrition, we're talking about losing 7.5% of body weight. And if we are discussing severe malnutrition, then we're looking at 10% or more loss of the patient's body weight. Again, that's for ages 2 to 20 years old. We can also look at weight for length deceleration Z-scores. If it's decreased by one Z-score, that would be mild. If it's decreased by two Z-scores, that would be moderate. And if it's decreased by three or more Z-scores, that would be severe malnutrition. So I just went through a bunch of numbers. I don't expect that I'm going to memorize it just by reading it once or twice or even just recording this episode. Um, and I therefore don't expect that anyone listening is going to remember it. Um, I think the key point here to understand, because you can look all of this up, is that when it comes to making the diagnosis of malnutrition and looking at the severity of malnutrition, there are different ways and different approaches to making the diagnosis. You can look at uh, for making diagnosis specifically of severity. You can look at a single data point or you can look at multiple data points. If you're looking at a single one, then you're really just looking at, you know, one point Z-score, get in, get out, look at what that is, make a... Um, make a severity diagnosis. If you have multiple data points, well, then you want to look at that change over time. What's going on with their weight velocity if they're less than two years old? What's going on with their weight loss in general um, over time compared to their expected or their normal body weight? And, uh, and then you can also look at weight for length deceleration of their Z-score. A term that is often thrown around in the hospital setting um, as well as with patients who are usually really sick, a lot of times maybe even on their 
um, deathbed or near dying uh, are wasting and stunting, specifically wasting. We hear a lot about like, oh, that patient's wasting. Um, and we hear that especially in patients with, um, say, anorexia, for example, or a chronic medical condition, like we said, that's near their the end of their life. So what is wasting? Wasting is when a BMI or weight for length Z-score is less than negative two. And it's usually the result of chronic malnutrition. Stunting is specifically looking at length or height, and that is when the Z-score is less than negative two as well, and again, that results from chronic malnutrition. So you have wasting and stunting. Stunting usually refers to uh, length and height. Wasting is specifically related to weight and BMI. Moving on to the pathogenesis of growth faltering. Now, the pathogenesis um, will include many different steps along the um, food processing, I guess you could say, in, in our body. It starts with inadequate intake. Now, that is the most common cause of growth faltering. It is due to insufficient su supply whether it's insufficient supply in the household, the child does not have access, or it could be due to um, insufficient consumption of food, meaning they're just not eating enough. So inadequate intake. The next step would be, you know, say, for example, there's a child that is getting enough. Well, are they not absorbing the nutrients properly? So that would be inadequate absorption. Next would be excessive expenditure. Maybe they're, you know, they have enough food, they have enough supply, they're, they're eating enough, they're absorbing it properly. It's not an absorption problem, but for some reason, they are expending all of the energy that they're getting from what they're eating excessively. And... Um, Lastly, if it's not excessive expenditure, meaning they're not using more than they um, should be using, well, are they utilizing the nutrients and energy that they're taking in properly? So we'll talk about different disorders um, and illnesses, diseases that fall into each of these categories that can help us get a better understanding and form a differential diagnosis for a patient that's coming in with growth faltering. Like we said already, the most common cause of growth faltering is inadequate intake, and it can be due to insufficient supply or insufficient consumption of food. Now, in the neonatal, the newborn period, because a lot of times we talk about growth faltering in the newborn period, they go to check on their weight, they follow up with the pediatrician, sometimes they even need to go back before their one-month visit, or they may need to go back uh, multiple times before then to look at their weight and their um, progress over time. Um, but in, in that neonatal period, sometimes it, inadequate intake reflects improper mixing of formula. So if you're diluting the formula too much, then the child might not be getting enough calories, enough nutrients, they're getting too much water. Or there could be difficulties with breastfeeding if the child is indeed breastfeeding. Um, so examples would be mom's not doesn't have enough supply, or maybe the child isn't latching appropriately, or you're not allowing the child to feed for a long enough period of time, or perhaps you're just not feeding them often enough. So there are so many things that can be involved in this category, which is what makes it really the most common. And um, per this Peds and Review article, we're going to talk a little bit more with an extended discussion later on about food security, uh, which also has 
uh, very important implications for household precipitation of inadequate intake. So starting with feeding-related issues, there is a psychiatric slash psychological slash social developmental diagnosis called ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, which may appear very similar to other uh, feeding-related issues in children, which can be part of their natural development um, or otherwise like a developmental delay or behavioral issue um, related to food intake. There can be GI causes of uh, feeding-related issues, such as maybe the child is at increased risk for aspiration, or maybe they have eosinophilic esophagitis or reflux. Um, they may have an esophageal web, or there could be a stricture. And even though they're taking enough in, right? Maybe they're they're bringing in, let's say, enough food, but maybe there's an issue with that food reaching the stomach. And if it's if it can't reach the stomach properly, then it's not then the the child's not going to um, then let it pass through and get absorbed and then utilized. Um, there can also be excessive milk consumption. Uh, which can actually lead to some nutrient or enzyme deficiencies. So think about that, especially in your uh, one-year-old and above that may be drinking too much cow milk, which, as we know, can cause iron deficiency as well as some other enzyme deficiencies too because they're getting so filled with, um, they're getting most of their calories and they're getting full on the milk that they're not actually eating other sources of nutrients. And this is not only a problem with the, you know, age one and older, this is actually a problem with, with all infants, um, especially once they start getting some nutrients from other sources as they begin to eat food right around that six month mark. Malabsorption issues include celiac disease, irritable bowel, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, pancreatic insufficiency, such as cystic fibrosis, uh, patients with cholestasis, giardia, short bowel, and several others that can cause impaired absorption or malabsorption from the gut. So they're getting enough food, but they're not being able to absorb the nutrients contained within, those, within that food in order to then go ahead and utilize it. Next up we said was increased or excessive energy expenditure. So we also like to think of this as an increased metabolic demand. If the body has an increased demand for nutrients uh, because it's being overworked somewhere in order to uh, get more energy than normally may be required, well then you're gonna have to up your game in terms of the food consumption that you have because you need more nutrients, more energy in order to satisfy the increased metabolic demand. So. Common examples of this are children with congenital heart disease or any other diseases, um, respiratory diseases in patients with infection, malignancy, uh, obstructive sleep apnea, and burns. In all of these conditions, and of course there are others as well, but these are very common um, to the pediatric population, and in all of these conditions you have an increased metabolic demand. So if your demand is higher, then your supply needs to be higher. This is exactly like business. It's not rock science. Supply and demand. If your demand is greater, well, then your factory needs to be working more. If your factory is going to be working more, you need to have more supplies. And so that's where the concept of growth 
faltering plays a role in patients with increased metabolic demand and maybe not enough supply. So it, that sort of touches in uh, touches on inadequate intake as well, because again, now we're going back to it's a supply issue. But the primary issue here is not that there's a lack of supply. Um, it's the fact that you're giving the child the supply that normally would be needed, but they are utilizing more energy than any other uh, healthy child normally would. And then there's defective utilization, such as we see with genetic syndromes like trisomy 21, trisomy 18, or other metabolic syndromes, for example, like glycogen storage diseases. Um, and there's many, many, there are many, many other syndromes um, included in the genetic syndromes as well as metabolic syndromes that can cause defective utilization. This is by no means an exhaustive list. Moving on to the history and physical exam. So the history of a child who you suspect or you actually diagnose with growth faltering includes asking about the pregnancy, get making sure that you look at the perinatal records, um, looking at mid-parental height, because that is important if you want to compare what what is the expectation? You know, where should this child fall? Are we going to expect a child to be six feet tall when both parents are four, four foot 11, for example, I know that's short, but, um, but, but the idea is there, right? So you want to make sure that you're being realistic in what your expectations are for the child. Every child is different. Their genes are different. Their environment is different. Their culture is different. So you want to keep all of that in mind. Uh, obviously, you want to get a review of systems to ask about different things like maybe vomiting or diarrhea um, to give you a sense of are they losing their supply. Um, get a detailed feeding history. Again, make sure you want to rule out like if there's inadequate intake. Uh, you want to look at family history of any G GI disorders, if there's a history of atopy, uh, developmental disorders, whether there's any history of nutritional issues or what form of nutrition is the family endorsing, especially if this is in uh, older infants, say, let's say this is a seven, eight month old, if the family is, for example, doing a ketogenic diet or a vegetarian diet, vegan diet. So you want to keep those things in mind because it changes the form of nutrition that the child gets, which can cause um, issues with growth faltering. And we're actually going to talk about some of these diets in a future episode. Um, and then other things you want to consider are mental health to make sure that you are thinking about how the mental health of important family stakeholders like the parents, for example, are affecting the child. Maybe the child is um, being neglected a bit. Um, and then talking about and asking about their uh, shelter, talking about their um, financial resources and access to food, all of those things are really important. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to social determinants of health. When it comes to the examination, you want to obviously do a complete focused exam. You want to look at muscle mass, adiposity, look at the hair, the skin, the nails, tooth decay, you want to look for a tonsillar hypertrophy. There may be some neurological abnormalities if the child is um, malnourished. You want to look for dysmorphism, heart murmur, organomegaly, um, and maybe perhaps delayed puberty. So making sure to note the Tanner stage as well. Now, all of these things are 
areas where you can get potentially a tremendous amount of information about a child who may be malnourished. Now, even before you say, you know, weigh the child or measure their height and put them on a growth curve, you can examine the child. You may not have all of that information, but when you examine the child, these are things that you should be thinking of and looking for um, on their exam. We've spoken now multiple times about these growth measurements and charts. Obviously, if you are in the medical field, whether you're in adult medicine or pediatric medicine, obviously in pediatrics, you're dealing with this all of the time, um, specifically for those that are in primary care. Um, but, you know, every, everyone more or less has a sense of these growth measurements and charts. And if you are not a medical professional, but you are a parent of a child or a sibling of a child that is uh, listening to this right now, um, so you want to have a, you know, kind of a basic understanding of these growth measurements and charts. It is not a one size fits all chart. It is a one size fits many chart because these charts were developed based on specific populations of children. And they do not necessarily take into account patients with trisomy 21, Turner syndrome, Cridusha, other syndromes as well. So there are other charts for those patients that have those conditions and you need to make sure that you're utilizing the right chart for the right patients in order to not overdiagnose or underdiagnose a condition. In children that are less than two years old, you want to make sure that when you weigh them that they are naked or that they are clean and have a dry diaper on. If it is a child that's greater than two years old, light clothing is okay. You do want to take their shoes off. Obviously, all of these things can affect their weight. You're checking their weight to see what their growth is. So the best way of doing it is to remove anything that can be um, causing any increased weight. Uh, you also um, want to keep in mind anything like nutritional wasting or stunting like we talked about before. Um, so looking at decreased in weight, decreased height, as well as decreased head circumference. And specifically head circumference um, is a late sign of severe malnutrition in children that are less than two years old or it can indicate a possible syndrome. So, you know, many of us sometimes may even disregard head circumference, but it is a very important tool in a child that may have gone um, unnoticed in terms of malnutrition. It is a late sign, and it implies that you really need to get things under control now because it may soon be too late. However, now you want to think about decreased weight, decreased height, decreased head circumference, also in terms of some things that may not be related to malnutrition. So a patient may have constitutional growth delay, meaning they're just a little bit delayed on their growth and they'll eventually play some catch up and get to their expected um, weight and height for their age. Uh, there can be a genetic factor involved or familial short stature, um, which can all play a role in the patient's um, data points on their growth curves. So bear in mind all of these things, everything that we've now mentioned about growth measurements and charts, because 
they are not, like we said, they're not a one size fits all. And it can be very easy to over or under diagnose a condition with these growth charts if you do not bear in mind some special uh, populations and uh, measurements as well. One other thing to touch on here, since we've talked about nutritional wasting and stunting, is that there is usually a um, a process um, that you can follow in time. So you may see that children usually start off with having a decrease in weight trajectory, and that might be followed by decreased linear growth. Um, and that can be compared to other non-nutritional causes like, like we said, um, constitutional delay or some of the other genetic or familial short um, stature syndromes. And like we said, deceleration in head circumference um, is usually a late sign of severe malnutrition in children younger than two um, years of age. And um, it can sometimes be an indication of a possible syndromic condition. So again, remember, like we keep saying, keep all of this in mind. Do not over or under diagnose um, unless you, uh, well, not unless, but until you consider all the possibilities, don't make that diagnosis. So you have a patient and you are concerned by their growth curves as well as maybe some of your history and physical exam that there is concern for malnutrition. And so you now need to focus on maybe some diagnostic testing to look for a cause if, the, if one isn't already discovered by the history and exam itself. So uh, your workup really is determined by the history and exam, but also to, a, to the child's response to um, initial nutritional counseling, right? So you have the child, they come in, maybe they're not growing as much as you'd like. And so you counsel them on nutrition. Maybe you even send them to a um, specialty, um, a nutritionist that specializes in, in this field. And if they fail to respond to nutritional counseling, then it may indicate further workup that's needed. Um, severe malnutrition with failed response may require a more significant workup. So things that you need to consider and the diagnoses that are involved with the test that you're sending include the following. So you may send a CBC with a differential. Things that you're looking for there are anemia, immunodeficiency, maybe some malignancy that is playing a role in increasing metabolic demand. You may send iron studies. Iron studies will help look for iron deficiency, which is very common with poor growth. Growth. You may get a chemistry panel. So you want to look for things like renal tubular acidosis, which could be causing um, electrolyte abnormalities, metabolic acidosis, increasing their demands. You may see things like refeeding syndrome, where the patient has hyperkalemia, uh, hyperphosphatemia, and hypermagnesemia related to refeeding um, the child. You may get a total IgA and uh, tissue transglutaminase IgA antibody to look for celiac disease, which may involve an impairment in absorption due to damage of the lining 
of the intestines. You may also check urine studies, which can look for infection, glycosuria, or renal pathologies as well. You may check the stool and get some stool studies again also to look for infection. There could be signs of malabsorption in certain stool studies that you send. And then obviously if there's a travel history involved, then that may increase your um, threshold or I should say decrease your threshold to test for some malabsorption um, syndromes, which can be related to infection as well. Um, you want to look for HIV and other types of infections too, which can increase metabolic demand. Um, you may check for micronutrients. And typically the micronutrients, it's really if it's indicated by the history and the exam. If you're seeing signs of uh, micronutrient deficiencies on, on your examination. Uh, some kids may warrant a sweat test if you're concerned for cystic fibrosis. Uh, they may need a modified barium swallow if you're concerned for aspiration or if there's, say, an anatomical de defect that you're suspecting. They may need an endoscopy to look for GI pathology. Is there perhaps eosinophilic esophagitis? Is there something else that's going on in their stomach? Is there an ulcer that's preventing, that's causing them to have maybe an aversion to eating because of the pain associated with it? Or is there severe reflux involved? Again, at reflux, you don't really need the endoscopy for, but sometimes you're looking for um, a either anatomical or even a uh, histological um, diagnosis that may be involved. Uh, some kids may require head imaging if you're concerned for intra an intracranial mass or diencephalic syndrome. Say this is a child who maybe is vomiting all the time and so they're not going to be growing well. Head imaging may be indicated in that case. Uh, some kids may require thyroid function testing if, for example, there's like short stature or maybe you're thinking that there's an increased metabolic demand and they may have hyperthyroidism and so they uh, are in need of a higher support supply, but maybe we're not giving them the higher supply. We need to control their thyroid function. Um, so those are indications for testing and some of the pathologies that are involved with um, abnormalities in some of those tests. Um, specifically in, um, in children that have very focused histories and exam findings, um, the sweat test, the barium swallow, the endoscopy, the head imaging, the thyroid function test, like I've already mentioned, but just to keep it in mind, those are really highly targeted diagnostic testing, um, diagnostic tests that's indicated by the history and exam. You're not doing this for every single patient. The other tests, you know, sometimes it's just a blood draw, you're, you're drawing blood anyway, so you may send additional studies. Um, to bear in mind, maybe it will help with the diagnosis, or maybe it might be a complication of the whatever the uh, underlying etiology is, and you may need to then go ahead and correct those deficiencies as well. So just keeping all of this in mind when working up a patient, you don't want to do too much and, you know, um, uh, give their insurance a reason to not cover their um, medical evaluation. Um, but at the same time, you want to do enough to either find the cause or find the complications of whatever the underlying etiology is so that you could correct those two before you have multiple other issues on your hand to deal with as well. One additional thing that I want to discuss here that the Pediatrics and Review article uh, brings out is that 
the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AAP, and the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology um, have a campaign called Choosing Wisely campaign. And their recommendation through the Choosing Wisely campaign is to not routinely send IgE testing for food allergens unless there is a specific indication by the history or physical examination. And the reason why is because not only are false positives very common with these food allergen IgE testing, but negative testing does not necessarily rule out food allergies, especially in patients with GI disease, which is less likely to be IgE mediated. And additionally, they mentioned that in atopic children, um, food elimination poses potential increased risk for later systemic response and unnecessarily restricted diets, which can further exacerbate growth faltering, right? So you, you really want to make sure that you're not over-testing and then causing further restriction uh, and food elimination in children who are already at increased risk for um, growth faltering. We're going to shift a little bit now to um, some clinical considerations in different uh, pediatric population. So we'll start with clinical considerations in prematurity, in intrauterine growth restriction, and in children um, with uh, who are small for gestational age. So in this population, you really want to accurately assess gestational age at birth and if there was intrauterine growth restriction. You want to categorize their birth weight as either appropriate for gestational age, small for gestational age, which is less than the 10th percentile, or large for gestational age, which is greater than the 90th percentile. SGA babies with proportionately depressed, so symmetrical depressed weight, height, and head circumference have poorer growth prognosis and developmental prognosis. Um, in these children who have symmetric lead um, declined weight, height, and head circumference uh, at birth, you want to evaluate for genetic conditions or intrauterine infections or teratogens that may have impacted their growth uh, inside the uterus. When we talk about preterm infants, it's important that the growth chart that you're using is the Fenton growth chart. So again, before, earlier, we discussed that you, it's not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to these growth charts. And specifically, the, the CDC and the World Health Organization growth charts that we use for older children are not adequate for preterm infants. We have specific Fenton growth charts, which are used for preterm infants, which has been validated through many studies looking at the preterm infant population. Then what happens is uh, we can then transition to the World Health Organization chart. And preterms can transition to the World Health Organization growth charts at four to 10 weeks after term, which usually is their 42 to 50 week uh, post-menstruation age. And um, the World Health Organization chart specifically you want to do what you want to look at is um, it corrects for gestational age for preterms until about age two to three, right? Because these are preterm infants. It's not like we're expecting them to um, be at the same growth velocity as a child that was born at term. And this may continue until this child is at age two to three years 
old. And so um, we use the World Health Organization growth curves for this population because, again, it has been studied and avoids over or under diagnosis in this premature population. Failure of patients of babies who are born SGA, small for gestational age, Failure of SGA catch-up growth at two years of age warrants an endocrine consult because at that point, now we're looking for any hormonal considerations as the underlying etiology for poor growth. So SGA babies, yeah, they're small when they're born, but we expect them by two years old to sort of catch up to the general population. And if they don't, then an endocrine consult is warranted. Shifting now to the population of children with autism spectrum disorder, we'll discuss some clinical considerations. In children with autism spectrum disorder, now again, they, they're they on a spectrum, right? So they can be much higher functioning or they could be much lower functioning somewhere in the middle, but many of them have behavioral and sensory difficulties, often which uh, presents with um, GI uh, disorders as well. It's not in all children, but it can present with some GI uh, dysfunction or disorders as well, which can lead to poor growth. And poor growth and feeding is something that is that should be a trigger to screen for autism spectrum disorder. So for children that aren't really growing or they're not feeding well, you need to consider what behavioral or sensory components are involved that may be playing a role that can um, help us recognize maybe a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder um, earlier on because then we can focus on uh, those things with targeted therapy, which is crucial and extremely beneficial for the child's ultimate growth, not only in the physical growth um, realm, but as well in their social growth too. Again, in this population, um, you want to bear in mind that there are other considerations, special considerations. So these children may be underweight or they may be overweight. And they can have either micro or macronutrient deficiencies that may require um, supplementation. These children with autism spectrum disorder have a four times increased risk of GI symptoms compared to the general population. And that's what I was getting at earlier um, in terms of their behavioral and sensory difficulties that are often um, involved with some GI symptoms as well. There's a four times increased risk of GI symptoms in this population. And children with autism um, may have a restricted variety. They may have limited textures that they um, that they like um, and that they're willing to eat. They may have food neophobia or complete food refusal, or maybe not complete, but some limited food refusal as well. All of these things play a role into growth faltering. And that is the reason why? I mean, this isn't one reason, the only reason. I mean, this is one of the reasons why that term failure to thrive is really being thrown out nowadays because it's not a failure on the child. The child has a condition and we need to work within the child's condition to help him grow and develop properly. Moving on to talk about some other considerations. You can have a patient with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, abbreviated as FASD, and other recreational exposures. 
and many recreational psychoactive substances are associated with a decreased infant size at birth. Only, and this is specifically for alcohol, only heavy prenatal alcohol exposure, though, um, leads to postnatal growth restriction and cardiac and renal malformations. So that is one of the iconic features of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is that it causes postnatal growth restriction as well as cardiac and renal malformation. HIV screening and other vertically transmitted infections should be tested if there was inadequate medical care leading up to the delivery um, or if there's any association with IV drug use. So you want to look for other things like as well as syphilis or hepatitis C um, when you're thinking of infections in this category. Binge alcohol prenatally is associated with iron deficiency anemia, so something to keep in mind there. And uh, patients with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder may have delayed feeding skills and aberrant feeding behaviors. Attained growth in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder can be less than the 10th percentile. Growth trajectory, however, should be appropriate for age. And uh, another additional component here is that the weight and height for a patient with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder should be proportionate. So that's something that we discussed earlier on when thinking about like some genetic syndromes. Um, But here too, with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, the weight and height should be proportionate. The difference would be is that attained growth is less than the 10th percentile. However, growth trajectory will still be appropriate for age. We're going to move on now to talk about child protection. An important thing to remember is that poverty in and of itself does not equal neglect or abuse. Now, CPS, Child Protective Services, may need to be involved in cases where the parent has profound cognitive disability or there might be untreated severe psych illness or there might be substance use disorder in the household that prevents needed outpatient interventions. Those are times where you may need to have CPS involved. And this is really the same thing that you would see with any child, even if they were healthy. If those were concerns that you had, you would still call CPS. However, the the thing to remember is that poverty in and of itself does not equal neglect or abuse. Now, um, something else that's important is that you should not admit The Peds and Review article AP says you should not admit a child for the purpose of comparing in-hospital versus pre-admission weight gain and for ruling out organic versus inorganic. All of that could be done outpatient. In-hospital weight gain is not specific at all for differentiating neglect versus other etiologies. And so admitting a child to the hospital just to compare in-hospital versus pre-admission weight gain is not a reason to uh, bring them in and admit them. There are some social determinants of health that that involve growth faltering, and it's similar to many other illnesses. We have poverty, food or energy security, or insecurity in this case, uh, housing instability, or climate change. And there are many programs that are available. So there's SNAP and there's WIC, and both of those have shown that they lead to a decreased risk of growth faltering 
as well as micronutrient deficiencies. So patients who need help and get help with SNAP and WIC, both of them together, have that decreased risk of growth faltering and micronutrient deficiencies. For patients that have SNAP alone, they have seen that um, that those patients have decreased food insecurity and also have an association, a positive association with with uh, birth weight as well as weight status. Now, climate change affects food quality and quantity. So those are things to consider, right? Because you're thinking like, oh, how would climate change um, be a social determinant? How would it affect my my patient's growth faltering and their inability to uh, grow and develop appropriately? Well, think about climate change and the fact that it can bring along with it infectious diseases, natural disasters, migrations, all which then might feed into some of the other social determinants of health. So something else to consider. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, but immigrant parents fear sometimes participation in aid programs like SNAP and WIC because of their immigration status. And they feel that if they sign documents and they become part of these aid programs, that the government is then going to uh, be able to locate them, call ICE, and have them um, sent back to their country. So that is something to think about. Make sure that they're aware that this does not mean that they are going to be on a governmental list for ICE and that their immigration status is going to be questioned. Some other cultural considerations to have immigrants need to adapt food cultures with constrained resources. So they may not be used to uh, our culture, for example, here of food and eating the way that they were used to their culture back at home. And they may have constrained resources and now they need to adapt to this new culture. Other things to consider that there are cultural beliefs and practices. So, for example, in some cultures, a chubby baby means that they're healthy and that their family's able to provide for their baby. It's actually something that they look at positively. Uh, a child that's physically active is thought of as being healthy and not necessarily underweight. However, they still may be underweight and be physically active. So you have to keep that in mind, too. Now, other things to think about in terms of cultural considerations um, is warmth. So in patients that go from warm climates to cool climates, um, there has been studies showing an increased risk for rickets, um, vitamin D deficiency. Um, pretty interesting. I'm not too sure about the um, pathophysiology there. Um, specifically in how the climate affects the vitamin D other than, you know, the what we typically think of as the sun providing vitamin D for the body. But um, I'm not sure if that is based off maybe UV light or what exactly um, causes that. Is it perhaps maybe that children spend more time indoors when they're in cool climate? So just, again, something to consider and think about. Um, other cultural considerations are um, includes variation uh, in expectations of feeding skills. So some want to do bottle and breastfeeding. Some want to do breastfeeding only for the beginning parts and then want to wean off and go to a bottle. Some want to do finger feeding. Some want to do self-feeding. So they're all different considerations when it comes to cultures and how they uh, supply their children with nutrition. So just be aware of them, be 
cultural competent to the best of your ability. And uh, before we pass any judgments on our patients, make sure that you're thinking about how this might affect their cultural beliefs and can then lead into distrust and a poor doctor-patient relationship as opposed to you trying to prove to them that you care about their child and their growth. And now for treatment and prognosis. Earlier on in this episode, we spoke about the mortality and morbidity for patients who are malnourished and may have growth faltering. So uh, we're going to talk about now what the ultimate goal is. So in the United States, this is something that's emphasized by the AAP Committee on Nutrition, optimizing nutrition and growth from the prenatal period through approximately age two years is considered the most critical time, not only in minimizing nutrition-related mortality risk, but also because during that time frame, you are optimizing long-term outcomes in both, in not both, but in all things like stature, cognition, and non-communicable, non-communicable diseases. Um, specifically, nutritional interventions do have consequences for health outcomes and socioeconomic implications throughout the life cycle and for the next generation. So it is in our best interest, not just for our um, patient in front of us, but for the next generation, for their children and their children to come, as well as for taking care of our country and our world, for them to be healthy children with adequate cognition and ability to provide for society. From a nutritional perspective, there's sparse data that exists regarding in the optimal pace of recovery, how quickly uh, one should recover. However, generally, we aim for a sustained expected velocity of weight gain for age without prescribed supplements after a child has attained a weight or length or BMI in the minus 2 to, one, to, ne- to negative 1 Z-score range. And the goal is to help children reach their potential for linear growth, immune function, bone health, and cognitive and academic outcomes. Now, of course, at the same time, you want to be mindful that if you are trying to get children to eat more, that you are not, you are not uh, promoting unhealthy behaviors and that you avoid excess weight gain by, while promoting healthful dietary choices in order to ameliorate the risks of um, conditions like cardiovascular disease and diabetes that are associated with early malnutrition. So let's focus on a few different populations. So if you have, uh, for example, infants, one of the main things that we do is focus on the feeding schedule. And that means looking at, number one, what is the child feeding? Is it breast milk or is it formula? How often are they feeding? How much are they feeding? If they're breastfeeding, then what you might ask the parent to do is pump and feed. That way you can measure the volume. If they, if mom is concerned about inadequate um, supply of breast milk, then you might consider switching to formula completely. You may not have enough calories in the formula. You may need to increase the caloric density of the formula or even increase the caloric density of expressed human milk if needed. However, you still want to keep in mind free water requirements. Right? So even if you're increasing the amount of calories, and a smaller amount of volume, you still need to make sure that the child is getting enough water requirements for the day for hydration. In older infants, 
Uh, we fortify solids with the addition of powdered formula or oil. Uh, for toddlers and children, we focus on increasing calories using calorically dense foods such as oils, avocados, heavy cream, and peanut butter, while avoiding foods with low nutritional values like sweets and fried foods, even though they may have a higher caloric content. Uh, we often recommend decreasing intake of juices and eliminating other sugar-sweetened beverages uh, because they have minimal nutrient value and may actually suppress appetite. Sometimes we do need supplements like high-calorie supplemental beverages and multivitamins, which can be considered in children who meet micronutrient and macronutrient uh, needs. These supplemental beverages, they should be prescribed with counseling on exactly how to use them and how to schedule them so that the beverages don't start to become in place of food and therefore exacerbate further feeding difficulties. Another important topic when it comes to feeding is the behavioral perspective. So the treatment of feeding disorders in children is focused on more so parental education around structured mealtimes, which includes setting limits and boundaries in a consistent and positive environment. This might include avoiding of grazing. So that might mean like including liquids other than water, specifically like right around mealtime because it could suppress appetite at mealtime. And also limiting mealtime to usually around like 20 to 30 minutes in order to avoid child and family stress. Feeding is more likely to progress in a consistently positive environment without force feeding, including parents who give distracting distraction by toys or with screens. They, the AAP specifically recommending against that because that is a form of force feeding. And they're saying that it can worsen aversion in the long term, and uh, this also... Um, allows uh, parents to then create a more reward-based feeding system. Um, something that, though, is important is that it once the child refuses a food and rejects a food, you should not reward them by giving them their preferred food because that further worsens the aversion as well. Uh, other common behavioral tips include letting children get messy with the food um, because that provides them a sensory experience, encouraging self-feeding, and providing positive feedback for desired behaviors. Other things to consider, caregiver modeling by eating the desired food, showing themselves chewing it if they need to, and generally just trying to make meals more of a social and enjoyable experience. And when emphasized that way, it really um, creates a rewarding and positive experience for the child that they then um, adapt to as opposed to creating an aversion to. So evaluation and treatment of medical factors for undernutrition um, as well as nutritional rehabilitation and feeding therapy in isolation um, are likely to have suboptimal outcomes. So for example, a common underlying medical problem, especially in infancy, is aspiration. And that can usually be managed with thickening of milk or adjusting like the nipple flow rate and positioning itself. GI pathology, though, causing discomfort can be due to eosinophilic esophagitis or celiac disease, and that needs to be diagnosed and treated. And also constipation management may also be an important component of the medical treatment itself. So you do need to work these things up even when you are thinking you know what the diagnosis is. 
Some patients require a referral to ENT if sleep apnea seems to be a concern or if there's tonsillar hypertrophy, which could be making swallowing difficult for the child. In children with uh, medical complexity, you may need collaboration with other specialists, which is key to addressing any underlying causes of increased metabolic demand and or feeding difficulties. So is there a role for um, pharmacological use? Now, except for vitamin and mineral supplementation, in the case of deficits, there is very limited role for ph pharmacologic intervention. There's no evidence for treating growth faltering with acid suppression. Now, some people may want to use ciproheptadine. It was, it has been shown to be relatively safe and effective in the short term. It was never really studied in the long term, even in young children. So um, people like to use this in, even in young children for increasing oral intake, which can help accelerate weight gain and also improve mealtime behavior. Its specific mechanism is that it is an anti-serotoninergic and antihistaminergic, with the most common adverse effect of somnolence, but less common adverse effects of excitation or other behavioral changes sometimes seen in older children. Now, in clinical practice, usually we start with non-pharmacological treatment, which is similar to almost every other condition in pediatrics, unless, of course, a medication is absolutely needed. Um, but depending on a child's progress, as well as their degree of impairment, the family stress, ciproheptadine may be helpful in expediting this weight gain and feeding improvement process. Now, once the improvement's underway, though, children and their families can more easily um, undertake the, the further work that's needed for continued nutritional and feeding management. There's like this hurdle that you get over, and then once you're over that hurdle, you're more able to um, harness the energy needed to uh, control this nutritional uh, progress. So I feel like nothing that I've truly mentioned so far has been rocket science. And, and it goes for the rest of this, really. Early referral for multidisciplinary support can help reduce severity of malnutrition and feeding difficulties, as well as caregiver stress and long-term developmental and education impairment. So get developmental and psychosocial intervention done early, promptly, while medical evaluation and nutritional intervention is being implemented. For severe cases or complicated cases or persistent cases of growth faltering, you especially want to get that multi disciplinary care early on because it has been shown to decrease caregiver stress, improve child mealtime behaviors, and advance caloric intake and weight gain. Now, depending on the nature of the feeding difficulty, you may need speech and language pathologists involved as they might be critical to co-manage children who aspirate, as well as uh, the ability for speech and language pathologists, occupational therapists, and or psychologists uh, to be helpful in working around any sensory-based and behavioral difficulties, as well as other developmental delays. If you are going to be successful in the treatment of growth faltering, it requires more frequent extended contact than is usually recommended in the traditional primary care schedule. Um, so, and this goes along with the degree of malnutrition, how disordered the feeding is, as well as any other comorbidities that might be at play. All of these things will ultimately determine how frequent you want the patient to come back to your care. Now, if multidisciplinary care 
is geographically accessible and primary care office-based interventions have not improved the child's status over several months, then you you should refer the, the patient. It might be indicated to refer them elsewhere. In other isolated settings, uh, the clinician may consider mobilizing local early interventions using social service, nutritional providers into a sort of ad hoc team, ideally with frequent phone coordination. And the, the goal would be a collaborative and culturally competent approach approach to support all of the opportunities for children and for their families to thrive. This uh, can be extremely uh, devastating and stressful for parents to hear that their child is not growing as they should be and that they're not gaining weight as they should be because sometimes uh, parents feel that that is the one thing that they have control over. And so it becomes really important to support families um, almost as important as the child being fed themselves. If the family feels supported, they will feel the, the strength and support to implement the changes that you are trying to make in order to help their child with growth faltering. My name is Dr. Max Cohen, and this is my podcast, Lil Sapiens. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow along and listen to some of my other episodes as well. And if you can, share this with your family, friends, colleagues, or anyone who you think might benefit from the wonderful world of pediatrics.